Welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast, bringing you juicy combos with thought leaders discussing the wild world of parenting. I remember looking at my husband and I was like, you know, whatever happens, we're going to be parents. Whether we adopt, whether we do embryo donation, whether we do, we will be parents. I will be a mom. And I think just saying that out loud to him was so powerful for me to hear. Biologically, mine doesn't ma- didn't matter. I was I will be a mom. And so we put a lot of these stresses on ourselves. And I think when you write it out or when you talk it out, it's very cathartic and it can be transformative, you know? What up, Vibe Hive? It's your favorite day of the week. It's Wednesday. That means it's a new episode of Elevate the Vibe. I'm your host, Jason Berlin. And with me is my beautiful, lovely co-host, Katie Berlin. We are coming in strong through your headphones or your car speaker or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. And we are excited to share the story of our guest today. Our guest is a dear friend of ours, Pracy Katari. She is an emergency medicine physician located in Atlanta. She also is a fertility warrior, a mama, and a mama-to-be who has held it down in the city of Atlanta all during last year during COVID. Just an amazing human being who we are very proud to call our friend as well. Not to mention, she is a masterful yogi as well. Katie and I met her on a yoga retreat outside of Cabo San Lucas a couple years ago, and she was just a delightful person to talk to and be around, and we're thrilled to have her on today. So Vibe Hive, give your warmest welcome to our guest of the show today, Dr. Pracy Katari. Pracy, welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast. Please introduce yourself to our audience. My name is Pracy Katari. I am a board certified emergency medicine physician, um, but I'm more, more importantly, I'm a mom. Um, I am a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, and I am a fertility warrior. Talking a little bit about your background as a doctor and an MD and how you got to this path, can you share with us when you were growing up what that was like? You know, it's, it's interesting. So I, um, I am the youngest daughter of two. Um, I, my parents are both, you know, Indian. They emigrated here when they were in there, my dad was in his late teens, early twenties. My mom came soon after she was married. And from a very, very young age, we were sort of, it was instilled in us that education was so important. And, you know, education was going to be our pathway to success and our, was going to provide us stability. And I think, you know, I volunteered in high school and in the hospital and I really enjoyed it. But I think truthfully, you know, Indian, Indian children are usually either lawyers, doctors, or engineers. And so both my sister and I, you know, ended up going into medical school. Um, we were very lucky enough to get into, be accepted into programs like right out of high school. So we, we went, we went to college for four years and we had a guaranteed seat at a, at a, at a medical school. So I think education was always the, the foundation for most of our conversations. Like you know, how are we doing in school and what tests were we studying for? And so um, that's sort of how we, that how I got led to being a physician. I think there was a lot more independent decision-making um, once I decided that I wanted to go to emergency medicine. I mean, when I started, it was still, it wasn't a very common field that my parents knew about or even my family knew about, but it was the one field that when I walked into the ER as a med student, I felt like 
I was alive and I felt like I could really, I could, I could do my best work taking care of these patients. You know, it's a high intensity, high adrenaline. Um, you have to be highly adaptable while working in the ER, but there's also a lot of calmness and comfort that we as physicians provide to our patients. And I think that's really what I fell in love with. And Pracy, remind the audience or inform the audience, where are you located? So I work in Atlanta, Georgia. I work in a hospital about 30 miles south of Atlanta. I, I was raised in New York City, or in, sorry, I was raised in New York on Long Island. I went to college and medical school in New York City. So as an ER physician, day in the life of, what does it look like for you? Maybe like pre-COVID oh, or gosh. even during COVID. I mean, you can go during COVID. Yeah, I, I'll, I mean, I'll speak to both. I think, you know, a day in the life of an ER doctor is really a day in the life of, I don't know what, what's going to happen. Like, I don't know what's going to come in. You sort of, I mean, to this day, and I've been, I graduated from residency in 2013 and I graduated from medical school in 2010. So I've been essentially been in the ER for over 10 years now. And I mean, I still say, say a prayer as I'm going into work. Cause you, you'll, you'll, you'll never be, there'll never be a day where you won't be shocked or amazed. And so I think you just have to be on your toes. So, I mean, you can walk in and your first patient is an elderly patient that may be having a stroke. And then your next patient is a a young kiddo that's that has an asthma exacerbation. So you really have to be able to navigate from from room to room and patient to patient. Now, when you see children, I would love to know what are some of the most common reasons that parents come in with their children? And then what are reasons like on top of that where they're coming in that it's completely non-emergency that you see the most of? Oh man. So, okay. So obviously my disclaimer, anything I say is just general medical advice and truly is more um, just my observations as a clinician. Um, I will say that my perspective on what truly is an emergency and what is not emergency has shifted from being a mom. <laughs> so I would have said, oh, you know, kiddos come in with a runny nose and, you know, probably don't need to come to the ER. But I know <laughs> that when my daughter, and I'm board certified trained, 10 plus years experience, when my daughter had a runny nose, my first phone call was my sister, who's a pediatric hospitalist. So I have a pediatrician on standby at all times. So with that being said, I mean, I think I always say, and this is what I say to all of my patients, if you are worried about what's going on, if you're uncertain, then come to the ER, come to the ER and seek medical care. Because even if you have a, a stubbed toe and you just need me to say, you're going to be fine, I will happily do that. And truthfully, in this setting of COVID, that's even more important. We are sending patients home um, in like early on in their illness and COVID that when they're safe to go home with the, with the advice saying, listen, if your condition gets worse, cause this is a, this disease can go one of two ways then you have to come back. And so come back and we'll, we may tell you the same thing that everything looks good. Your vital signs look good. You can go home, but I'd rather you come back and see, see one of us so that we can, we can reassure you. I think that like, I've had, I have a friend who, when she was a new mom, her daughter like spiked a fever mm-hmm. and I think she gave Tylenol and then like the fever didn't get better. So she ended up going to the ER mm-hmm. and 
one of the physicians there was kind of like, or the nurse was like, oh, like new mom, like kind of made her feel bad for it. So it's nice to hear you say you actually feel the opposite. Like no, nothing is too small if you're worried about it. Cause as a parent, your gut kicks in and tells you. And it's like, if your gut is telling you that you need to, you know, cross all the T's, dot all the I's, Mm -hmm. then do it. Absolutely. That sixth sense of a mom, no amount of training and education can ever trump that. What if, what a parent knows and a parent, a mother's instinct is I will, I will totally understand and work up just to, just to be certain. Cause I want everyone, you know, I am also, I want to make sure that when my patient leaves the ER, their family members leave the ER, that they feel comfortable going home. That's the first question I ask when I talk about, Hey, I'm going to send you home. Do you feel comfortable with this plan? If you don't, let's talk about why. And if you do, then that's great. You know, it's just important to trust your gut instinct. Outside of children, just what are some of like the wildest scenarios that you've seen? Oh my God. Okay. Huh. I mean, I've been put in, I've been put in situations where I had no idea what was going on. Um, this is, this is definitely like XXX rated. Um, so I had, that's a, okay. We, I, we have an explicit rating, okay, so you can okay. go for it. <laughs> so I, there was, I used to be the not, night doctor for my house, for my group. Um, so I worked only nights for, I think two, for a year and a half. Um, and so you, sometimes you'll tend to get these sort of vague complaints at like three, four in the morning that ha- that night, there happened to be two female physician physicians working in the ER. And I walk into the room and the the guy, the complaint was like, um, I just can't pee or something. I walked into the room and I'm like, okay, you know, if you can't go to the bathroom, like let's sort of do, let's like do a bladder scale. Let's do the full workup. I mean, this gentleman ended up having first asked for another, ask for another physician, ask for a male physician. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm the only one here. Um, and he ended up having multiple rings around his penis. And I had never been trained. I'd never seen that before. So I literally, I mean, we had to go to lengths to get that, to get it removed. No pun intended. I mean, <laughs> we had to really, really MacGyver how to, how to take care of his problem. And he was, I mean, he was so embarrassed and mortified and I felt so bad for him. Like cock rings? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He was like, there was a, a deal at the local you know, <laughs> I don't, store. And it was multiple. And I was like, couldn't we have just been like, just, just one? But no, it was like multiple. So, I mean, it was, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think all the nurses and everyone, I had no idea what that was. And so I, my first look was, per, I was perplexed and my nurses were like, well, this is, you know, a ring around the penis or a cock ring. And I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I instilled a lot of confidence in him, but we figured it out. He was, he was fine. He could urinate after he, you know, he was totally fine when he left. But I mean, those are the kind of things that no amount of training prepares you for. I feel like anytime a doctor is, is uh, asked that question, a lot of times it comes down to something where it was like a sexual act <laughs> that like went awry and someone was like, Hey, like, you know, they come in a little bit 
you know, red cheeked, a little embarrassed, like how, uh, help me, how do I get out of this situation? Yeah. And you know, you just want to help them feel like you just want to, yeah, you, you know, and you also are so aware of how embarrassed that they are, you know, like no one wants to be put in this situation. No one wants to see me. Like I, and I understand that you're just like, let me take care of you and I'll quickly get you out of here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I that's mean, probably I- my wildest, wildest one. And it, it's probably not the most PG one, but um, that's probably the craziest thing. I mean, there are a lot of gratifying and, you know, um, like gratifying patient encounters. I mean, even like, especially during COVID. And I think this is where you, where you remember that this is where like the human aspect of COVID has really taken a toll on physicians. You know, a lot of my job is to unfortunately deliver, sometimes deliver bad news and no one can read your facial expressions. I mean, I have like a, a mask, another mask, goggles, a huge face shield. They can barely even hear me, let alone see my facial expressions or see my empathy or my sympathy. And so that, and then you can't even like put your hand on their back. Like you're very aware of social distancing, you know, oftentimes not for me, but more so for the patient, you know, their family member. So that's been really, that's been really tough, you know, and I've had patients come in where they've said, you know, I've gone to so many doctors and I've gone to so many ERs and I don't know what's what, like, why am I still hurting? Why is it still happening? And then you, when you end up finding a reason, even if it is something like that's malignant or cancerous, they still are just that gratified that you, or they're just happy that they have an answer for what their ailments are from, you know? Yeah. It can be very frustrating being a patient and you're in this gray area where you just don't know you just don't have an answer and you're like uh, it's almost worse being in the gray than receiving the diagnosis because then once you know what it is you can put a plan in place Mm -hmm. no matter what that plan is but when you're just in the gray you're like I don't know where to go from here yeah and that's like that's life in general right so many of us like that's in so many, so many situations that we're in, like when we don't know what the hell is going on is when we're the most frustrated. And so I'm, you know, I sometimes I'll have patients, family members just be really upset. And I'm like, I, cause oftentimes my job in the ER is to tell patients that this is, these are the, the things that I have eliminated. You're not having a heart attack. You're not having you know, air where there shouldn't be in your, in your chest cavity. You're not, you don't have a pneumonia. You don't have a blood clot in your lung, but they're like, well, what is my chest pain then? And I'm, and that's where it's, I, I have to be very sort of had to make sure I, I um, convey to them that not having an emergency is a good thing, but you definitely need follow-up, you know? And I, I understand the frustration because I, I myself was frustrated when I was given the diagnosis of unexplained infertility. Like, what does that even mean? You know, it's very humbling. And I want to talk about that, not only your journey with it, but also the position of going from physician to patient and how that felt and that entire process. So to give us a little backstory, can you share maybe when you received that diagnosis, what that was like, and then up to where you are today? Yes, absolutely. So I, you know, um, I've always been very linear in my life. Like, and you probably remember this as well, but like, you know, I went to college, I went to med school, I went to med school, like 
went to residency, finished residency. The next thing was, okay, I need to, need to get married. I got married. And the next step was having kids. And, you know, every, in every point in my life, when I worked really hard for something, I was able to achieve it. And so when it came to fertility, I felt very similarly, you know, I was like, I'm going to get ovulation kits. I'm going to like, make sure I like use them properly. I got the best ones. And like every morning I would like pee on a stick, find out when I was most, you know, fertile. Um, but after about six months, um, you just got that, that like instinct that you're like, something's not right. And so we went to the, the fertility doctor. And of course I was 32 or I was, yeah, I was 30, 31 or 32 when I got, when I first went to see the IVF doctor and she was like, um, everything she's like, you know, you're young, you're healthy, your, your cycles are normal. So you should be, you should be fine. This should, you know, this we'll do, we'll give you some pills and I'm sure you'll, you'll get pregnant. And then, um, once my blood work started coming back, it no, she was like, you know, I think we just need to get on this, on the first, like the assisted technique, um, train right, you know, sooner rather than later. And I remember get when she told me that it was just a, a knock to my stomach, right? Like we're taught that getting pregnant is like the easiest thing, right? Like, you know, avoid, you know, you're avoiding getting pregnant when you're twenties, like, so, you know, and then in, all of a sudden you're like, I want to get pregnant. And it's so, and you think it should be so easy. Everyone around you is getting pregnant. Like no one seems to have an issue. And I remember saying, saying to myself, like India has a billion people. There's no way I'm going to have a problem getting pregnant. It's not in my genes. <laughs> um, so when I got, it was just, it was just, it sort of knocked, knocked the wind out of me. And at that point was, uh, was Virage tested as well? And yeah, he was tested and he was, his, his, his numbers are great. You know, we're wonderful. And when she started, when we did a digger deep into sort of my fertility, my egg, my, you know, my follicle counts were on the lower side. My hormone levels were on the higher side of normal. So everything was still normal, but they were at the either, either ends of it higher or lower than what they, what they should be. And so, um, we started doing IUI and I will tell you those probably though that those few months were the hardest. And what is IUI? So IUI is intrauterine insemination. And it's essentially, I was on a medication called letrozole to help, um, grow your follicles. And then they, um, inject sperm into your uterus. And so the idea is that you've taken a lot of the hard part out of it, you know, traversing the vaginal canal and making it into the, going past the cervix. So that was all that, you know, they, I would, they seem pretty confident that that would work, but once you got, I went, the first negative pregnancy test we had, I remember just sobbing. And then the second one, I was, I was broken. I felt so defeated. You feel like there's something wrong with your body. Um, and all that's like that, that self loathing comes in, which is so terrible, but it, you just, you know, you feel like this is the most natural thing that I can do. And why can I, why is my body not doing it? And, um, I remember that the morning after our second IUI, we found out it did not work. I remember waking up the next day and being like, this decision is mine, how I proceed with this. You know, we can do another IUI or we can go to IVF and I can do it with a smile on my face or I can do it battered and broken. Either way, I'm gonna go through with it. One way is gonna be, be less painful than the other. 
And so I, um, I remember thinking I'm like, this stuff should be like natural. Like it's none of it's like a deliberate process process, but this was a very just deliberative decision for me to be positive about it. And, you know, that was, I think that was in June, May, June. And then we, you know, we started that we were on the IVF train and we were on it for a while. <laughs> and then you did become pregnant. It did. It did work. Work for you. Yeah. So how many, how many times did you have to go through the IUI process? Do you recall until you? Yeah. So I only did it twice, you okay. know, after doing my own research. And I think, you know, being a physician and being a patient, you start realizing that doctors are going to have your best interests in heart, but they're never going to be in your shoes, period. And so you have to do your own due diligence. And so, and also you have to know what your limits are. So my doctor recommended three IUIs mentally and emotionally. I cannot handle three. I said, let's do two and let's move on. And so she was on board with it. You know, I think as a physician, I feel confident expressing my, my concerns or my opinions. I think oftentimes, you know, most patients probably don't, but they need, but I, I want patients to feel, be advocates for themselves. Please like ask me questions or tell me what your concerns are. Be open, open dialogue will help any relationship, but especially a physician patient relationship. I can see that stemming in this situation where the patient is looking for this outcome, this ultimate outcome, and they want Mm -hmm. it so badly that they're willing to almost do anything that the doctor says. I could see it being, I know it's like a very different end of a spectrum, but almost like if you, if someone was to receive a cancer diagnosis, it's like, I don't even know what to do. I just want to not, you know, have this issue anymore. And I will do whatever you say. It's almost like your own boundaries and limits on what is appropriate for you are out the window because your, your doctor almost feels like you're God in that moment. You're just like, whatever you say, I will do. It's so true. I mean, it's so true, but I think, you know, and for a lot of times, like it's better to have someone that's objective, right? When you are, when you've been given a diagnosis, your rationality, your sort of, you lose that. It goes all out the window, you know? So it's nice to have someone that's a little, that's objective about what your diagnosis is. But it's also equally as important as when you can, when you can get your wits about you to make sure you're fully informed as well. Now, when you were going through the IVF process, what was that like? So I was really lucky. I I was lucky in the sense that I had a friend that was literally going through it with me. And so we actually ran into each other at the fertility doctor. No, neither of us knew that we were there. And I remember seeing her look on her face and she looked shocked and got pale. Like she, you could tell that no one knew what was going on. And I was just like, in my little happy, you know, initial bubble of like, oh, this is going to work. IUI is going to work. And then when it didn't work, we ended up going through um, IVF together. And that was just so that was so, it was so important for me to remain grounded that there was someone else going through it with me and that I could vent to, and that I could talk about how upset I was about the other freaking, you know, birth announcement that I received or the pregnancy announcement that I received, you know, like it was just really nice to not feel, to have a safe space and not feel guilty. And you want it, you want that to be your husband, but he's also going through it and they're managing it on their own, right? Like they have, I think we think fertility just or infertility just affects women, 
but it affects the relationship and your partner as well. You know, it's not just one of you going through it. And so as much as I would want to lay on him, it was really important that I had someone else that I, that could talk to me about it. That was going through with me. I don't want to talk to my, my friends and family who had like no problems getting pregnant. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just, I can't like, I can't, it's too painful. Like you can't relate. It was so easy for you. And so it was really nice to have someone that I could go through it with and to go through the ups and the downs with, because that's what IVF is. IVF is it's a roller coaster. You know, some days you're going to feel great. Some days you're going to have lows. You know, our first, we had gone through IVF in, um, in June, in June, we had our egg retrieval in June and our first transfer in August failed. And that's another blow, right? You're like, it's, this is IVF. This is the, you know, a genetically tested embryo. This is a good embryo. That's going to, it's going to implant. And then you're, then all those feelings of my body can't do what's natural. Like I've, it's been given everything and it still isn't working was, a, you know, that, that, those feelings are revisited so often for anyone going through infertility. And so it was nice to have someone say, it's not your body. Like, it's fine. Like, you know, you'll get through it. We'll figure it out. And I think, I think for me, the moment that was the most, um, like, I felt like I had taken a huge burden off was I remember looking at my husband and I was like, you know, whatever happens, we're going to be parents, whether we adopt, whether we do embryo donation, whether we do, we will be parents. I will be a mom. Like, and I think just saying that out loud to him was so powerful for me to hear that I'm going to be a mom. Biologically, mine doesn't ma- didn't matter. I was I will be a mom. And so we put a lot of these stresses on ourselves. And I think when you write it out or when you talk it out, it's very cathartic and it can be transformative, you know. And for anyone who's not familiar with IVF, mm-hmm. what does the like step-by-step process look like? Sure. So the initial workup, the initial infertility workup includes blood work, ultrasounds. They look at your anatomy. They look at your hormone level. So you're kind of looking at, you know, your, your chemistry as well as your, like your, the part, your parts. And so that's the first step. And then once you get your diagnosis, or if you have an unexplained diagnosis, the next step is to do an egg retrieval. And that process entails, um, you give yourself daily injections of medications that are going to stimulate your ovaries to make as many follicles as they can. Cause the idea is you want to go in and harvest as many eggs as you can, the higher, the number of eggs, the higher the chances. Right. And then the injections are in a specific location. They're all on your abdomen. Yeah. They're all on your tummy. They're all like, they're all small with like a little insulin needle. It's very, they're very small, like very small needles and they're not terribly painful, but yeah, for sure. They're, it is uncomfortable and more, more than even the shots, you become so bloated that you become uncomfortable. So that's step one. Step two is then the, the retrieval process. And then the next part is a transfer where they actually put the, when they, well, I guess after the retrieval, they'll um, take a sperm and put it into the, into the egg, see if it matures, make sure it gets to a certain day of maturity, and then either transfer it back into your uterus or they will freeze it. And when they do the retrieval process as well as the implant, Mm -hmm. that's all done inpatient at a medical facility versus step one where you are giving yourself the injections at home. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you are 
at home doing all the shots. You go in every day for blood work and every day for ultrasounds. I mean, that was, I was very lucky that my colleagues were so um, flexible with me because for two weeks straight, I was going in every morning for blood draws and ultrasounds. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It's time. Yeah. It's time intensive. It's financially (laughs) a huge cost, you know? So it's, but like you said, like people are willing to go through lengths, right. To, for this outcome. And then your very first transplant was successful. No, my first one was not successful. My first one did not take, and that was devastating. August 2nd, I can remember the date. Like it was, it was, didn't, it didn't implant. And so, um, you know, we, but I, I think every single time I've had a letdown or a disappointment like that, I felt like it's always led to something bigger and something more meaningful. And so, um, after that one failed, I real uh, that's when I had my realization that, you know, I will be a mom no matter what, you know, it was, it was accepting that things were out of my control. When you go through, a lot of us are type A, you know, especially physicians, but a lot of, you know, it's women that are, you know, we're very, we're, we'd like to be in control. And so this <laughs> was a lesson for me that no amount of hard work, no amount of, no amount of like hard work in the, in the usual sense was going to make it, was going to, was going to make me have this, this outcome. The hard work was really internal, was accepting that I had no control over this and I had to just let it go and be happy with who I was. And really, and I mean, I had, I had such body issues because you gain all this weight and I just did not, I was just not in a good headspace, even when we did that first transfer. So I'm like, think in retrospect, you're like, well, thank God it didn't work. Cause I got to really work on my mental health before I, before it did work, you know? It's a, it's a precursor to being a mom, right? I mean, this is, I feel like any woman going through fertility issues, they're already a mom. There's so much of, of being, of so much of motherhood is out of your control. So much of it is, is accepting that you can't control everything. And so much of it is accepting the situation that you're in and, and finding the beauty in that situation. And seeing everything reflected back to you oh, as God. just, a, you know, like a, it's like a crystal ball of yourself, basically. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I need to clean this up so that, you know, this next generation or these future beings are, are what the good that I hope to put out into the world. That's, that's like, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, a lot of what, a lot of what I do now, especially now having a daughter is I just want her to look up and make sure that look up and look at me and be like, I'm proud of my mom. And I want, I want to be the woman that she, that I want her to be, you know, I want, I don't want her to have any body issues or confident issues or imposter syndrome issues where you feel like you're not good enough for something, you know, she, I mean, and a lot of that stuff is just, we don't, we didn't necessarily learn that from our parents or from society. We just, we absorbed it, right. It wasn't an active learning process. We just, it was just our environment. So it's, so important for me to make sure that I am standing straight. I'm speaking up and she sees me. And even if she's not around me that I'm doing it for, I do it with her in my, in mind, you know? Now, when did you have your successful transplant with your daughter? So that was October 20th was the date that we found out it was my, it's my husband's birthday. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, it was so funny. I remember when we first got married in 2016, I remember for his first birthday in October, 2016, that we had, we were married. I was like, oh, how wonderful would it be if I could tell him I was pregnant today? And that obviously didn't happen. And then fast forward a year and I literally, we, I told him that we were pregnant on his birthday. It was the best feeling. It was the best feeling. And I think sometimes you think with fertility, you're going to, the spontaneity of it all, spontaneity of it all will be sort of taken away from you. And that was, that was, it was like the best story, best gift I could have ever given him. And probably, probably the last gift, gift I've given him. <laughs> <laughs> this is your first and only gift. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it probably also makes it that much sweeter in a way because the two of you have gone through the journey together. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, babe, we weathered this storm. Like That's so true. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right that that was the first hardship that we'd ever felt together as a couple. I mean, granted our wedding planning, which was, our wedding was huge and, you know, had a lot of stressors in and of itself. I mean, I had to escape to a yoga retreat, like, you know, a couple (laughs) months before, but that was, this was a true test for the both of us. Like our, like no one else knew what we were going through except each other. And so, and it was the first time I, you know, he was seeing me be like, be really hard on myself or be in a really dark place. And it was the first time that he had to sort of figure out in real time how to, how to respond to that. And by all means, I was not perfect and he wasn't perfect, but you know, we learned a lot from each other and we learned a lot about each other during that process that I would never take away. And when you think about the work that you do also, like there's probably many people that maybe they have a a type of job where they can ruminate on what they're going through throughout the day. Like, you know, not that their job's not important, but like if, if I was going through that, yes, I need to focus on my work, but someone else's life is not in my hands and my day-to-day work. So for you to have to draw that line and say like, I know that I'm working on this myself and like I have this scenario. I mean, you know, not just during your IVF treatment, which was so taxing, but just even in every day. Mm-hmm. And then you have to show up at work and it's like you you really have to leave everything at the door, which is impossible almost. Yeah. But you know, Katie, I think that's also what made it easier to go through. I mean, you like for me, that was my be all end all going through IVF. Like my life had stopped. Our life had stopped. We were just doing, I didn't see my family. I didn't travel anywhere. I mean, my schedule was so tough with appointments. And then my, like mentally I was only, I was stuck in fertility and like getting, having a baby. But when you go to work, you realize that that shit doesn't matter anymore. Like people's problems are really big and patients are coming in and it was just humbling, right? Like it, it reminded me every day that yes, this is a really tough thing that I'm going through, but there are a lot tougher things out there. And so, you know, it wasn't as challenging as I thought it would be to be doing both. It was actually sort of my, I don't want to use the word escape because it wasn't, it was just sort of uh, it was, it was a reminder. Yeah. It made it relative. It like made it, relative yeah, exactly. To, Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was, you just are so you're grateful for what you do have. Well, and that can apply to so many people that look at their lives and even the last year and think like, 
you know, my situation is really difficult and I'm having a hard time mm -hmm. in whatever I'm going through. But then as soon as you kind of step outside of yourself and see what other people's challenges are, you're like, all, all of a sudden your challenges, not that they're not difficult, but they, but it's like, you're almost grateful for what you right. have. And Absolutely. then you're like, man, like, you know, you see what someone else is going through and you're just like, okay, like, yeah. This puts it in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what that's what this year taught us, perspective, right? I mean, 2020 was supposed to be my like our family's year of travel. Like we were going to Hong Kong, we were going, you know, it turned into something very different, but it was we gained so much perspective from it, you know, like toilet paper is really valuable. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You yeah. know, like, but family time is so valuable. And, you know but it was just, it was, we, I could have chose, we could, we could each choose to look at things through rosy lenses, or we can choose to look through things in a negative lens. Right. And I just, it's, it's hard to always be in a happy place. And trust me, I'm most often times than not, I'm probably not there, but you know, it's just, it's a good reminder, right? We can, these are decisions that we make when we wake up, how are we going to look at the day? Now, part of this that you touched on was the expense side of it mm -hmm. so for some people is there the option that IVF could be subsidized in some way because I please enlighten me on this because sure. I don't know can you receive insurance coverage for any part of it yes so we were lucky the first time we went through it we actually did have insurance coverage my husband's company we had really good health insurance and they um and they provided health insurance coverage. Um, the second time around, that was not the case, but in this, and so it's, it's actually individually, it's, it's actually done by state. So I'm going to be, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but New York has infertility coverage. It's mandated by New York state that all insurance providers provide fertility coverage. Um, I think New Jersey is similar. I think um, maybe Colorado, I don't know about California, but Yes, there's definitely um, some insurance providers will cover based on where you live. Um, and some insurance, some companies will provide it based on, you know, who you're working for. We had it the first time, the second time we didn't. And what was shocking was that the, um, the negotiated insurance rates are way lower than the out-of-pocket expense. So for I had, we had $20,000 worth of um, IVF covered when, with, we, had, we had insurance. That was going to last like six retrievals. One retrieval cycle, when we paid for it out of pocket, was just $14,000, not including medication. So, I mean, it's this is something that I think needs to change. Why should my coverage in Georgia be different than someone who's going through it in New York versus someone who's going through it, you know, somewhere else? You know, it shouldn't, it should be more, it should be more unified. And this is something that we don't have, a, we don't have control over. And so hopefully one day I can, we can be more at, we can be bigger advocates for this. Well, and also like, for example, your husband's company, you had the ability to pay for it and then job changes. Can you imagine if you're someone that maybe didn't necessarily have the financial means and you're like so close and then there's a job change, maybe unexpected. Mm -hmm. And then that happens and it's like that, dream or you know ideal scenario is kind of the rug is ripped out from underneath of you 
It's so true. I mean, it's so true. I, I had friends who had to take took out money from their 401k to make this happen or who mortgaged their house. A lot of physicians that I know had to do take second and third mortgages on their house. And, you know, with IV, with IVF and fertility, like it's a slippery slope. Once you start on the road, you don't even know when to, when to stop necessarily. Right. Like you, we sort of lose ourselves in it and stopping isn't even an option because we haven't achieved what we wanted to achieve, or we haven't exhausted it to our, to where we feel satisfied that we've done everything we can do. You know, it's just so unfortunate that cost has to play a role in this, you know, that moms can't be moms because they don't can't necessarily afford it. And I know friends who are like, it's just too expensive. I can't go through it. And even, you know, on the like postpartum side of that too, like not even if you received IVF, but even just anyone who has given birth, it's like that aftercare. It's like, okay, baby arrived. Like, yep. You know, good, good luck. luck. Yeah. And it's like, wait, no, this is just as hard, if not harder than what I went through, which was really hard, you know, for it's the last. So, yeah. No one prepares you for it. You know, and this is where physicians need to do a better job of just recognizing it. Right. Like it shouldn't be at a, a you know, a paper that you get at check-in that you just like, Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Are you, do you feel, do you feel like you have the postpartum blues? Are you eating like there? It's just, it's very, it's very, um, secretarial and like mechanical the way they ask it, you know, it's not like, it's like a true delve into how are you doing? You know, like what's going on? Basically after you give birth, your provider gives you, it's like five to 10 questions. It's like a one sheet and it's like, how are you feeling? And it's a scale like on a scale of one to five, you know, as good as I've ever felt or horrible. And you're like, today I feel, I feel great now, but 10 minutes ago I was like ready to bang my head against a wall. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely like an antiquated or it just doesn't dive deep and outside of going through the entire pregnancy process or even maybe what you had gone through before and then your postpartum period and what you're dealing with then and, you it's know, the like, postpartum period can even last longer than the first three months right I mean women can, women have changes in their sort of their brain hormones and psyche for up to a year to two years and so it can be delayed onset and a lot of these things and I think this is the same thing to be said for uh, fertility a lot of this stuff isn't spoken about so if you don't know the terms, then you're not going to know what to look for. So for someone to have like, be really sad and fatigued and, you know, not eating well or sleeping well a year later, they're not going to think it's postpartum. They don't know that they don't have the vocabulary to know that. And so this is where we as women have to speak up and talk about our own and be real and honest, right? Like, as honest as you can be, but to share your experiences so that people are educated, you know, and they do know what to expect and they do know what to look out for. Now, what was cool about your very first pregnancy is that your daughter and my son were born right around the same time. Mm -hmm. So I, unbeknownst to me, had no idea you were going through this. And then, um, you know, I'm like, working out pregnant, like super fatigued. And I remember you sent me this video of like, you're inspiring me and you're doing squats and you have a bump. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like I was, I was so excited. And your beautiful daughter was born 
I think they're just maybe like two or three months apart. I, I think, think they're pretty. So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty close in age. And you and your husband decided again that you wanted to go down this route to mm-hmm. try to have another child. You know, so I, I was convinced after the first time I was like, well, my tubes are cleaned out. My body knows what's, what it's doing. It's going to be no problem. I'm going to get pregnant right away. I was like joking with my husband. We're going to have Irish twins. Like they're going to be the same, you know, we're going to have no issues. And of course things don't go as planned. <laughs> so I had, we had sort of talked about the end of 2019, if we were not pregnant, that we would go back to see our doctor. We had had one embryo left from our prior retrieval. It was just an untested embryo. Meaning that it wasn't, they, we weren't able to find the genetics out on the, on the embryo. Um, so we'd gone back to see our fertility doctor. She, um, you know, started the whole process again, same thing in terms of like ultrasound sonograms, um, sorry, ultrasounds, blood work, et cetera. And, um, this was right when COVID hit. So we had scheduled our transfer at the end of March. In the middle of March, she says, you know, you work in the ER, you're around COVID all the time. I don't think you should go through with it. There's not enough information about, um, you know, about pregnancy and COVID. And I had taken off time for this retrieval. I'd always, you know, with my daughter, I'd taken off two weeks post-transfer to, to, to rest. And I'd done the same thing this time. Um, and so I was really disappointed, but it made sense. So we took a break. Um, June, we did the transfer of that embryo and it didn't work. And I was devastated. And again, you know, the the thing about the human spirit is that it's so resilient and the refractory time was a lot shorter. So I found out on July 4th that it didn't work. And July 5th, I was on to the plan. Like, what are we doing next? Like, what's the next step? And so, and it was at this moment that I had told myself, or I thought about this sort of, you know, thought, thought about this in passing. Um, if I was going to go through IVF again, I was going to document it. I was going to talk about it and I was going to share it because as an Indian woman, we don't talk about fertility. We don't talk about infertility. We don't talk about miscarriages. We don't talk about not wanting to have kids. None of that. We don't, we're just, it's just, it is assumed that every woman wants to have a child and that every woman will have a child. And so we had started that. Um, so in, when we, decided to start going through IVF the second time I started journaling, talking about it and posting about it on Instagram. And it was very therapeutic for me to reach out to so many people and to find out that so many women were going through the same thing and we're finding comfort in going through it together. And so we had to do a retrieval all over again. Um, and I aged, my ovaries aged and, you know, we only got one embryo that was genetically normal and, you know, matured to the right amount. We transferred that in um, at the end of October. And I found out the day that Joe Biden was announced president that I was pregnant. So it was was very memorable. (laughs) You're like win for the country and win for me. (laughs) Okay. So this is why we were waiting. We were just waiting to make sure that we had like, you know, the right person in office before I could get get pregnant. (laughs) Just having an understanding of what it was like your very first time going through IVF and then seeing your beautiful daughter who is Mm -hmm. healthy and beautiful. She is adorable. Thank you. And then knowing 
what could happen again this second time were you like more like gung-ho on it like like yeah we're we're doing this or did you feel just like okay like I you know I have one beautiful healthy child if this doesn't happen you know that's okay like were were you just gonna like see this through to the end like no like I know I can do this I did it once you know, that's a really good question. And I think I worked through that after the first transfer didn't work. And so when the first, when I, um, you know, I was determined to, I really wanted my daughter to have a sibling. And a lot of my feelings of getting pregnant were not related to me wanting to have another baby. It was me more like, I want my daughter to have a sibling. And I was like, I had gone to the best shape. I was like back to pre you know, to pre-pregnancy weight. Like everything looked everything was back to normal. Like my, my life cadence had a, had a routine now. And so when I did it, I remember thinking to myself, like, why are we doing this right now? And everything for me is always very planned out. And so I remember being like, no, this, this, is, this, this time makes sense. Like I have time off. This is the right time. They'll be like two and a half years apart, you know, or three, yeah, two and a half years apart. It'll be good. When it didn't work, it was much more soul searching. Cause I was like, we're we're having to pay for this out of pocket. So it's going to be at least $30,000, $35,000 all in. And why are we doing this? And I remember just feeling like I want, my family doesn't feel complete right now. And I think that was where I was like, it wasn't just about Sia having a sister or a brother. It was more about, I wanted our family to be complete. And I think I had to allow myself that growth to happen. And to really be invested in mind, body, and soul into this, you know? And in terms of, you know, the, we have to have that conversation though. My husband and I, like, how many times are we going to go through this? Like, what is financially, it's expensive. And it's also, you know, we are really blessed and grateful to have one, which is really hard for a lot of folks, right? Like a lot of people don't, you know, they are unable to have, to, to have one on their own. So we talked about it and I think we had, decided that we were going to go through it at least a couple times and then sort of go from there. And, and again, knowing that we were going to give ourselves grace and revisit after each time and each cycle, what, what we wanted to do, do next. I mean, I can't imagine number one, going through that. And then also being in a situation where you're working in an ER during COVID like that just not even knowing how that could affect or if every day the office that you step into, it could be like that. So I'm sure that just all of it was not a decision that you take lightly, but also the fact that your husband's so supportive yeah. of you and then of the process. Like I would think that for anyone who's going through something like this, if they have a spouse, a significant other or not, I feel so alone. I don't know what to expect. But having some sort of support system seems like the like the game changer. It was. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, having him sort of hold me up or just sort of reinforce what I was thinking was so important. But I think with a lot of this stuff, it's so personal, right? Like at the end of the day, his response to me was always, you know, this is happening to your body. Like you're injecting yourself with these hormones. You're mentally going to be going through and like, you're emotionally going to be going through a roller coaster. I mean, 
So what is it that you want? And I think he did put a lot of it on me. Like, you know, what, how comfortable are you? And I think, um, that was a lot of pressure. Cause I'm like, you know, I know you want, I know you definitely want another one, you know? And so, but I think, you know, you, you, we learn to live in our reality, right? So we learn to live in what we know. And I think if you're going through it by yourself, there's also a lot of autonomy and independence and in knowing that you are making decisions for yourself and a lot of strength in that, right? Like if we were on different pages and I know couples that have been on different pages, it, they can, it can actually be stifling. You know, like I am not able to do what I want to do because my husband isn't on, on board with this. And, and it makes sense. He's allowed to have an opinion, right? Like he yeah, loves to go through it. So it's, are we? you know, yeah, on both hands, there's, there's pluses and minuses for sure. And I am so lucky and grateful that I had a partner that was so, that was truly a partner in this. Um, but, you know, we, we're a lot stronger than we think we are. And so even going through it by yourself, I have no doubt you can, we can go, you know, you could go, you could do it. You could do it. What would be a key takeaway that you would want to share with the audience? So I think, you know, this is, I think for me, the biggest takeaway that I would hope someone would take, someone would get from this is just, you know, knowing your own, your own strengths, knowing your own value and, and, and knowing your own story and your story, each, each person's story has so much value. Your voice is unique. Your perspective is unique. Your, your expertise is unique, right? You know, I am a Indian woman who is an emergency medicine physician who is going through, who went through IVF. And that is my, that is what I can speak to. And I have, there have been so many people that have reached out to me looking for advice, just being, because I'm Indian and they're like, no one talks about this. You know, how do I talk about it with my family? And Indian families are very opinionated. And so I would want people to know that their, their voice really matters and that they can, they can make an impact in their own, in their own, you know, circle. Are there any resources that were helpful for you or that you would recommend to the audience if it's, website, book? So I think I did a lot of, I have a, I have a, a, a hard, like a tough relationship with the internet because it can be really helpful, but it can also be, it can also be very, you know, anxiety provoking. You mean you have patients coming in daily who are Google doctor dying? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That would be me. I'm like worst, that. <laughs> the worst case scenarios on like, you know, fertility and, you know, there's, I actually, my biggest advice was do your research, find out what you need to find out and then close the computer and then don't, don't research it again. You know, I, people say this all the time and it's the most obnoxious thing to say to someone that's going through IVF or infertility is just relax. It'll happen. It's so annoying, but I will say that the truth in that is once you accept, once you can find space to accept where you are, then that will be your, that'll be where you can find quote unquote, your ability to relax. Just having confidence in your ability to know that you will get through to the next step, whatever that next step is, will be empowering. You have created just a separate IG account Mm -hmm. to document your journey and to talk about this. So can you please share where the audience can find you? Yes, it's on Instagram. It's Preys, P-R-E-Y-S-M-D. Um, it's sort of my little passion project. 
and hopefully one day I really want to get into infertility advocacy and making it more equitable so that all of us have the same resources on hand, you know, for sure. Awesome. awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so oh, much for joining us. We are you. beyond excited that your next edition is on the way, potentially, you know, arriving in July. I'm a July mm-hmm. baby. So I have a, be- yeah. What I'm, is your I'm birthday? The 20th. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm rooting for July 20th. <laughs> you had the October 20th confirmation. That's so right. I'm hoping, you know, with Sia, so I'm hoping a July 20th. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right <laughs> Fingers crossed everything goes well, but this was so great. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you. And we love, we just love hearing your journey and appreciate you being so open. Thanks for helping us elevate the vibe. Oh, anytime, anytime. Hey there, Vibe Hive babes. If this podcast has brought you any value, please rate and review on your favorite listening platform. And if you're feeling really generous, share with a friend. Visit us at elevatethevibe.co for show notes on this episode and previous episodes. This podcast is intended to educate, entertain, and inspire. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions you may have. And as always, thank you for joining us to Elevate the Vibe.